Welcome to episode 95 of the Historic Performance Podcast featuring Alex Natera, Senior Strength and Conditioning Coach at the Aspire Academy for Sports Excellence in Doha, Qatar. Alex Natera's story begins in a country that most people probably have never heard about. I come from, from Papua New Guinea and I'm up north of Australia. During his early adolescence, he left Papua New Guinea to attend boarding school in Australia. And it was there that he met an influential person. The uh, fitness coach at the time, Mr. Cooper, I think I was about 14 years of age and I'd made my decision that I was going to be a, what we termed, fitness coach back then. It was this decision inspired by Mr. Cooper that would lead Alex Natera to leave Australia following boarding school to attend St. Mary's University College in London, England, where he obtained his bachelor and master's degree in applied sports science. Upon graduation... Alex joined the English Institute of Sport as the strength and conditioning coach, where he'd worked with rugby, football, pentathlon, and cycling. It was during his time there that he ran into a predicament. A high-level endurance athlete was being advised by her coach to begin strength training, but she was not sold on the idea. As such, a compromise was created. I managed, uh, with a bit of help from my my mentor, my, my boss at the time, to convince her trying some isometric training. It was very simple. I sold it, I sold it to her. I said, look, you'll be in the gym for 15 minutes. That's it. Just give me two, maybe three times a week. You're in for 15 minutes, and then you can go and you can crack on. And crack on she did with some amazing results just utilizing isometric training. But we'll hear more about that later. It was after this that Alex started to use isometric training with other running-based athletes and saw the same success. It is a method that he has refined over the past eight to nine years, and he still uses it today with his advanced running-based athletes at the Aspire Academy of Sports Excellence in Qatar. So on today's show, we will learn how Alex currently uses eccentric and isometric training with his advanced running-based athletes, and we'll hear about brand new research coming out of Australia regarding the minimal effective dosage needed to maintain eccentric strength qualities in season. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome back, everyone, to the Historic Performance Podcast. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to Alex Natera joining me from the Aspire Academy, located in Doha, Qatar. Alex, how are you? Very well, thanks, James. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So, Alex, you're currently located at the Aspire Academy, which has a fairly robust youth development program, which seeks to develop multi-sport skill development prior to focusing on strength and power development. How is it determined that an athlete has progressed to the point over at Aspire that they can start to be progressively externally loaded? Basically, if they have the skills, then we're happy to load them. So if they've got basic movement skills, they're coordinated, they are ready in terms of physically and psychologically, then we're happy to apply load. Now, we have issues around the amount of kids that we have at a young age. So we generally, our core business is from the age of 12 to 18. Our 12-year-olds coming in with sort of lower physical literacy levels means we need to spend a little bit more time 
and also the fact of us engaging and getting younger athletes in they're normally much bigger groups and then we slowly siphon out as we get more targeted towards the um the performance related end so we have an issue around coach athlete ratio as well so uh we have to be careful about how quick quickly we get barbells and external loads on people if there's not enough coaches in front of young athletes but to be honest we we have a bit of a mantra here talking about if they can run not making them walk if they can walk not making them crawl so we we see when kids are ready and, and we, we we apply external loads now from the curriculum the long-term athletic development sort of model if you like of ours by grade eight, when they're 13 years of age, we're applying barbell loading to them. That's more so, again, from the, the coach-athlete ratio, but also over time now we've sort of understood that they're not ready when they're 12. They might have great movement competencies. They might be ready to, to lift the barbell and get into the gym, but a lot of them on a mass aren't psychologically sort of mature enough and uh, I don't know, maybe disciplined enough yet to be in that gym environment. So we just hold them back for that one year and then we bring them in as 13-year-olds. And then, you know, they're in our system for six years. We think from 13 to 18, we've got a good five or six years worth of development, sort of gym-based and external loading development. And we find that that's absolutely um, plenty of time to get them to where we need them as KPIs for performance-aged athletes um, leading into major games and whatnot. So we get that five years of progressive strength training from uh, the, the ages of 13 to 17, 18, and we're pretty happy with that. Alex, the, the main area that I want to talk about today would be that elite student athlete during the, the late adolescent stages. You mentioned uh, KPIs. How does one go about determining KPIs on a yearly basis and strength power targets? Yeah, so um, the athletes that kind of make it through to our late adolescent ages here, it's a performance group that we literally call the performance group. So they go from foundation to development and then into the performance groups, which are the last three years of their their time here with us at the academy. Now, these guys, we affectionately call them, them alphas. Uh, they're above the normal students. They're very much uh, exuding elite characteristics from a training and a physical standpoint. Um, and they're really on a, a clear pathway to a, taking up their sport professionally uh, as they exit into our scholarship programs and our senior programs. And so uh, with these athletes, we're very fortunate enough to, um, A, uh, have over 11 years' worth of data so we can look back and, and understand what is normal and what is above normal for different age groups and different maturation stages along the pathway for any particular event. And with that, we're very fortunate enough to really stand on the shoulder of giants with S&C coaches um, from the past that have been here, like Adam Beard, Nick Poulos, Mark Kilgannon, and the like. So yeah, we have that data to inform us. The other thing we do is we look at both ends of the spectrum. So we look at what KPIs are with the elite senior athletes that are competing in, in major events. So for instance, if we looked at a long jumper, we'd either have them within the building or we'd ever have, either have access to visiting elite athletes from around the world where we'll collect their data and we'll understand what, say, for instance, the reactive strength index is of a long jumper at the uh, at the lead end. And then we'll know where our boys are starting from and we'll know where they are as opposed to the norms that have been collected over 11 years. And then we really look back from the elite level athletes, look back at where we are, and we kind of we started off just filling in the gaps from year to year. There are obviously different stages in an athlete's development and their training age that 
they have sort of bigger responses to the training that we're providing them. So uh, we do that. Uh, the other thing we do is we, we look at the research that's out there, and there's plenty of really good research on elite youth athletes, either, for instance, a German soccer study where you've got football kids who are really involved and uh, really dedicated to their strength training. So we can see that from a football perspective, uh, you know, what the upper limits are, if you like, of, of strength training and power training in a really, uh, I guess, progressive training program. We also look at numerous data that we can access from powerlifting, weightlifting worlds of youth and adolescents there. And we understand that with that particular sport that's really wrapped around a, a real anabolic environment, we can uh, also ascertain the, uh, the high-level KPIs that can be established with that sort of, um, that sort of training. And from there, we start filling in the gaps and we work out our KPIs for year to year based on the particular event or the sport that each athlete's um, competing in. And it's a fluid thing. So we, we end up getting our, putting our KPIs in place. So for instance, I'll say a 15-year-old sprinter, uh, which are the guys I deal with, I expect them at a, at a 1.5 times body weight deep squat for one rep or equivalent. I expect them to jump over around three meters in a standing long jump. I expect them to have a uh, 50, between a 50 to 55 centimeter vertical jump off of a force plate, hands on hips. Looking at uh, impulse there as the as the uh, as the, the measure of height, um, and those are formulated and fluid though over time. And as the data grows and grows, we get a better understanding of where our athletes need to be, and um, and that's what formulates our KPIs from year to year. Alex, I want to follow up on one point that you made there, which is you currently have 11 years worth of data. Yeah. What type of data are you collecting? So we're collecting, uh, we're very data centric here. We've had different platforms of collecting our data. At the moment, we are with Fusion using Smarterbase, and uh, the data is certainly stored better than it used to be. But we've got um, oodles of data sitting in spreadsheet files dating back to the very start, and it's on our shared drive. And that data consists of all physical data from the generic test that we would often give every single athlete, no matter what event or sport they were playing in the, in the, uh, in the academy. And they would range from estimated VO2 max via oblique tests, different uh, sprints and sprint splits, counter-movement jump, and the like. And then they'll get on to much more specific tests around the actual um, – Events they do, reactive strength index, drop jumps, for instance, squat jumps, loaded squat jump profiles and the like. So there's you know, 11, 11 years of data and many staff coming through. The data is not always, certainly not in a position to be able to go and write articles and publish research on. There's lots of holes in the data. There's still a lot of good data based off of those performance physical KPIs, if you like, and also just the training logs. Huge amounts and reams of data of what sort of training has gone in from the SNC coaches of the past, from the sprint coaches of the past and what they've done. Injury data as well that we can get um, against training loads from the gym, training loads from the track and so on. So mate, pretty much everything that can be collected has been collected here and, uh, and it's sitting on, on file. I don't want to be myopic here because I know things are multifactorial, but I, I still want to ask this question. Sure. Based on all the data points that you've collected specifically, I know that you work with sprinters primarily. Have you been able to correlate any specific data points to some of the elite KPIs that you're doing to say, for example, 
this individual has at least the strength and power base to be successful as a professional athlete or as a professional sprinter? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, um, the, my my strong my strongest and my most powerful athletes are also my best sprinters. So all the guys who are um, are running like fifteen year olds running around that ten seven mark, they're also very strong in the gym and they're also very powerful. The guys who aren't are not that fast, and it's as simple as that. When they're this young, you know, they already exude these qualities. Uh, it's not always training based. It's not because of the training they've they've um, they've been under undertaking. It's probably almost a result of the fact that they're genetically how they are as sprinters, that they're able to be able to lift really well and also jump really high on our KPIs. The guys that aren't, when we do develop those physical systems and the coaches work hard on their technical uh, development and their, and their training program per se on the track, then we also get them improving as well. It's pretty easy at this level, to be honest. As they get older, and we do work with senior elite athletes, that's when there's a discrepancy, but there always seems to be this sort of bandwidth, at least a range of strength and power and reactive strength that seems to be almost a KPI for all strength and power athletes, sprint athletes, for instance. Alex, I now want to progress to a recent presentation that you did um, at the Child to Champion conference, which was given in the United Kingdom, which was focusing on muscle actions and, and running-based athletes, uh, specifically looking at isometric and eccentric training. At what point within that foundation developmental performance model do you start to think about integrating isometric and eccentric training with your running base athletes yeah so so they they get introduced to it when they're in the development age groups so that's they're generally plus one to one and a half years phv around them and we start slowly building intensity on the eccentric and isometric components so they start at the very basic start of, of, of my model and they slowly work through them so it's around about 15 years of years 15 years of age when they get introduced to it uh, I have made dare I say the mistake of introducing eccentrics and, and higher intensity isometrics before uh, they're at that age and that that level of development and frankly it's a waste of time and you're just just better off sticking to traditional lifting and, and getting them stronger through traditional approaches. And that goes for not just not just necessarily the, the age group or maturation level of an athlete, but also just the, the training of an athlete. A senior athlete, 23 years of age, without much of a strength, power training history is, is just going to get uh, great benefits from just traditional lifting alone. So there's no real necessity to, uh, to progress them into more specific muscle actions. When you start first integrating isometrics, not necessarily the higher intensity isometrics. Yeah. What is the where, where what is the starting point? What how do you start developing that base? Yeah, so the starting point is effectively holding fairly long time under tensions. When I say long, I don't I don't generally do more than between eight to ten seconds as the low load body weight only type isometric holds. And I guess something to prefix. I'm just imagining some some listeners might be thinking uh, we're under a squat bar. And, and holding a static position at 90-degree knee flexion as my isometric. So when I do my isometrics, pr primarily for running-based athletes, it's in very run-specific angles. And I look at the ankle, the knee, the knee, and the hip. And there's exercises that I use specifically for those three uh, areas. And they're always in this position with a, sort of a dorsiflexed ankle, 
with knees uh, flexed to around 30 to 40 degrees and with hip close to, I guess, full extension, if you like. So uh, the heel in line with the hip and, and, the, uh, and the shoulders. There's a number of different exercises I use for them. So if, if, if we like rationalize or think about me holding these positions without, uh, instead of, uh, say, a leg press or a squat uh, or whatnot. So we start off eventually holding, a, for instance, a, a bridge-type position where your shoulder blades are on a, on a box and your heel is on another box almost equal in height. One leg holding that position with your hips up and suspended between these two boxes. And that would be a hold, an isometric hold in these positions for around about eight to 10 seconds. And that would be the very first progression they would use once they're in the sort of uh, the development type age groups. So prior to that, they would have done bridge positions with their shoulders on the ground, their heels on the ground, two legs, and they would have progressed slowly to one legs and they would have come up on the boxes with the shoulders in the box, the heel on another box and done as I say. And that would be the very first progressions in terms of the isometric hip exercise. And what I call, I call them holds, simply they're holds. They would progress down from long time under tensions, which I'm classifying as eight to 10 seconds. You would apply load and you'd move down the time under tension to around down as low as three to four seconds with, with fairly good loads on their hips. And when I say good loads, I'm talking about, for example, the supported weight through your heel in that position is about 30% of your body weight and they would apply that load again onto their hips. And that would be a decent load to hold for around three to five seconds um, of, a, of a contraction or a muscle action, should I say. So that's from the isometric standpoint. Eccentric standpoint, again, long time under tensions uh, in, through the eccentric phase. So we're looking at slowly lowering a load between eight and 10 seconds, and the load's going to be relatively light at that stage. Encroaching on uh, a one rep max load concentrically uh sorry about that man was a, a big barb just got dropped in the gym next door and um and then that eccentric uh, component of progressions will then decrease in time and attention with higher and higher loads until we get to uh, a maximal loading eccentrically which i call um unsuccessful braking where you're literally trying to apply brakes on a load so making an isometric contraction but the load's so high that it pushes you into an eccentric contraction. You're not able to, to resist the load on successful braking. For lower intensity isometrics, is there a reason that you do not exceed the 8 to 10 second threshold? Yeah, uh, simply, simply fatigue and, um, and the fact that there's more to the workout than just, just these 8 to 10 second holds. And I've, I, you know, I work with, obviously, the, the strength power spectrum end of, of, of my athletes. And so rather than have a longer contraction that just becomes highly fatiguing with low loads, we have a, an, enough of a stimulus, stimulus in 8 to 10 seconds to then swap to the other leg and then come back to it. So there's a bit of recovery and then we come back to the initial leg. So those repetitions can be uh, off, off those holds of 6 to sort of 10 seconds or 8 to 10 seconds. You can be doing 5 to 6 seconds on each leg. So rather than get huge fatigue off the one leg just holding it in a brace position, we get to swap over have a little bit of uh, recovery in the non-working leg, and then switch back again. Alex, so you mentioned that traditional resistance training, as probably many people know, is is a sufficient stimulus for an individual that ha really doesn't have a, has been subjected to that type of, of training previously. But when it comes to traditional resistance training, the primary focus typically tends to be on the execution of the concentric portion of the lift. What are the disadvantages that come 
uh, with this, especially when it comes to the muscle actions necessary for running? Yeah, sure. Um, so we know that there's a hierarchy of strength with our muscle contractions and muscle actions. We know that concentric uh, muscle contractions are the weakest and eccentric are the strongest with the isometric sitting in between there. If we're lifting only traditionally, then we know that the uh, the lift is limited to how much we can uh, lift concentrically. So we fail concentrically, we don't effectively get any isometric or eccentric overload. And if we decided that we wanted to, on the last rep that we're failing, we wanted to hold an isometric contraction or we wanted to go into negatives after that, well, we've already got residual fatigue from the rest of the exercises. So there's no way we're, we're maxing out on our isometrics or our eccentrics. The other, other problem with that is, is if we decide to hold isometric or longer times under tension using our eccentric portion of a, of a traditional lift, we only fatigue and, and negatively affect the concentric portion of the lift. So it's almost like uh, we're defeating the purpose. So um, it's better off trying to form and train these muscle actions separately. There's also a myriad of benefits doing um, eccentric training, and, and we, we know of this. There's plenty of literature out there. And, uh, Chris Beardsley has, has posted many infographics and uh, some good information on all the benefits of eccentric training, and we can't get that from the concentric training alone. We, we know that different sporting actions require either isometric actions like a, a sort of a wrestle or a scrum type movement. We know that eccentric sporting actions occur frequently, like landing and change of direction. So these, these actions are, are not, not trained, if you like, when we're doing only traditional training. There's an often thought process about just being just a sporting action alone being specific enough to train these qualities, but we're never, we're never applying sufficient overload so we're not never 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 actually developing an isometric or an eccentric quality if we just leave it to the sporting action alone there's issues around uh, symmetry as well through uh, concentric lifting concentric portions of the lift you can be very symmetrical concentrically but then eccentrically and isometrically be asymmetrical and we see that in a lot of our data we're collecting in fact you can be uh, symmetrical isometrically in uh to a, a particular movement, and then you change the joint angle and look at, say, for instance, your ankles. So you go from your hips to your ankles, and you can be asymmetrical in your in your ankles, but symmetrical concentrically. So you miss this as well if you're only working uh, concentrically. Then we have oodles of information around how soft tissue injuries occur, and they're normally from muscle lengthening. And if you get uh, if you're if you're only working concentric portions of the lift, then you you miss the opportunity there of strengthening muscle and and, uh, and tissue in the lengthening portion of a, of, a, of, a, of a muscle action. So there's plenty of reasons why traditional training alone can't be the answer, so to speak. And I'm certainly not advocating that we, we dump traditional training. That's going to be the mainstay. And like we just sort of previously suggested, that that's probably where most people who are, who are, um, are still developing are, are best spending their time. However, the, the, the icing on the cake, so to speak, would be very much looking at these specific muscle actions in terms of eccentric and isometrics. Up to this point, we have been talking about muscle actions and how they occur during running, but we haven't really specifically discussed them. So if we look at running and we take a look at it from the spring mass model, what exactly is occurring? Yeah, sure. Look, I should prefix this by, by sort of saying that, you know, I'm, I'm no expert. I'm not a 
buying that kind of series looked in depth at the spring mouse model or anything. But what I do is obviously apply uh, research findings, intuition, my experience to, to what I do. And to put, put it simply, the spring mass model is essentially showing uh, that our lower limbs act as springs when we run. So there's, there's effectively what they call a loading or breaking phase at touchdown. Then there's this compression of the so-called spring, if you like, leading up to mid-stance. Between mid-stance, there's this transition between the braking and propulsive impulses. And then we then, uh, the spring effectively recoils and there's this unloading leading to tow off. And that, that's basically what the spring mass model is about. But um, uh, what we do know is during compression, there's some level of flexion at the ankle, the knee and the hip. And we know that the better runners seem to have less flexion uh, at this mid-stance position. So the spring effectively doesn't, effectively doesn't compress as much. And I guess because there's flexion, we know that there's uh, the muscle tendon itself in these joints is lengthening. And it can be quite confusing when we talk about the muscle tendon, the muscle tendon unit itself, because we always often view them as one component. But it's really important to understand that they've got very different mechanical properties and functions. And this is where the issue lies. So when we're actually looking at what happens uh, when we're running, and in this case, when there's this compression force through the spring mass, uh, there's a number of different theories. Um, there's the potential that both the muscles, muscle lengthens and the tendon lengthens, and then they recoil. There's the thought that uh, the muscle stays constant, stays same and functions isometrically or quasi-isometrically. And it's the tendon that lengthens and then recoils and snaps back. And then there's also proponents, and I'm not one to judge either way, that, that talk about this compression being muscle slack. So with muscles at rest lying sort of buckled, the slack gets picked up through this compression or this counter movement, if you like. Then there's an isometric contraction. Then tendon lengthens and recoils. What most of the evidence is suggesting uh, in running, and most of it came from steady state running, is that the muscle actually does function isometrically or quasi-isometrically and that it's the tendon that lengthens and then recoils. And this, this evidence has now been uh, pushed out further and uh, it seems to happen also at max velocity sprinting. And there's even some evidence uh, and mathematical modeling suggesting that sort of beyond the first step of acceleration, there's also this isometric contraction that occurs with the tendon providing most of the work. And so, yeah, most of my isometric training is really focused around maximizing isometric strength qualities around these specific angles to running. Uh, and like I said, through the hip, a specific exercise for the hip, specific one for the knee and a specific one for the ankle. And, and yeah, and they, I guess they progress uh, looking at even more specificity to the running, um, running stride where there's particular exercises that go from holds to switches and to catches and as we progress through the switches and catches we're really looking at um, changing the limb we're looking at pre-activating the limb before it strikes the ground at different intensities or strikes the box at different intensities and so that's how i try and get very specific in terms of the muscle actions to towards running and and how the body's actually functioning within the introduction of the podcast i alluded to a particular story with an athlete and it's how you discovered that isometrics could be very impactful even if you remove traditional training. Could you tell us a little bit more about that story and how your thought process has evolved in the past eight to nine years regarding eccentric and isometric training? 
So I guess it was long before Aspire. This was a long time ago now. It's probably best part of eight or nine years ago, I think now, where uh, I came um, randomly in a, in a situation where I was working with a very successful athlete who had just come off of um, an endurance athlete who had just come off very successful competition in uh, on the world stage, was highly ach- achieving at the time. Um, and hadn't done a great deal of strength training. Coach had approached me, uh, wanting me to do some strength training with with said athlete. And there was a lot of reluctancy. Um, always a very, very difficult situation. The athlete's already successful, yet um, now the coach wants more. And um, I'm in a position now where I have to try and sell strength training to an athlete's already achieved. And at this stage, we were heavily into competition phases, occurred sort of competitions maybe once a month, if you like. And I was managed, I managed to put the athlete through 16 weeks of training. Through that training block, we were able to find some really interesting, interesting things with her running. I guess it's a good point to point out that you know a lot of these, a lot of times when we try and put an intervention, a training intervention into into a program, uh, we can falsely believe that it has worked, but we don't often see the bigger picture, which is all the other training elements that are going into this package, this performance package. Um, but this was a very unique position. I had an athlete already in competition phase. So we've done all the baseline training through general preparation phases and special preparation phases. We were competing, so they're fit, they're in form and ready. And the only real additional stimulus was the fact that we were able to do isometric training. And this was back in my very first attempts at it. And this was literally a mid-thigh pull strapped in on a force plate with one leg. And I played around with uh, different intensities. We wouldn't go in and max pull every time, but we had a level of what max was and we worked accordingly like a normal progression would be in a, in a gym and uh yeah lo and behold we we're very fortunate to, to collect data off uh, of our velocity control controlled runs which were great changes in contact time and stride length uh and improvements in running economy so it was the first thing that really made me think okay this kind of works at least for this athlete um i wonder what else what else and who else it can be um uh, success successfully applied to so then I got another opportunity to do the same sort of thing. But, of course, I now had more flexibility in the training. I didn't have to sell it to someone that they're going to have a 15-minute session. So we combined, combined other things in the program in any normal successful program. You, you'd have your plyometric work. You have your normal strength and power work. Plus, you end up doing your isometric work for your runners. And in this case, I started uh, expanding the exercise battery and including the ankle, the hip, and the hip work. And then I slowly grew the intensity of the exercises where we started incorporating the max works, the holds and the switches and so on, the holds, the switches and the catches. And again, uh, I now started looking at a little bit more discrete measures, some more scientific measures, if you like, and looked at RSI and improvements in RSI. Um, and then over the years now, we've, I've got this system that, that I feel works pretty well. I incorporate in the program. Uh, it seems to support my sprinting program as well. Um, I get changes in RSI pretty significantly in some programs where I've had to I've been able to control quite a lot, look at year-to-year changes and, and see when I do some of these larger uh, hits, if you like, of isometric training, I get really good changes in reactive strength indexes and then the normal concomitant changes in, in uh, sprint mechanics and sprint kinematics as well, uh, contact times, stride lengths um, and so on. So uh, that's kind of how it's morphed over into, into where it is today. It's heavily involved in the training program as sort of assistance exercises. So rather than doing uh, a calf raise or 
or some sort of um, hip extension exercise, you'll probably find that most of the time I'm doing some sort of isometric version of that exercise. And it's, it's something that's in the mainstay in the program that occurs all the way through the year. Um, and again, like I said, I, I progress based around competency rather than necessarily the, the year. In the, in the very senior athletes, uh, where I know that they are competent all the way through to the high-intensity versions of the exercises, then uh, I can then be a bit more strategic about how I, uh, how I program in those exercises based on the competition and the, uh, the training demands of the season. Before we start talking about the specific exercises that you use for the ankle, knee, and hip from an isometric standpoint, I do want to talk about how you go about integrating eccentric and isometric training in specific blocks with your running base athletes that are now in that performance stage. So they're in that late adolescence stage. Are there specific areas that you integrate it slightly more than other ones? Yeah. So the type of training I try to move to progressively, the higher intensity work with high loads, and very intense movements, so the, 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 the switches and the catches. Um, they're not suitable for younger or, or weaker athletes. So you're dead right. It, it, it for me, applies to the, the performance age athletes. And some of them, they'll go through the whole um, whole Aspire Academy uh, scholarship program and still not, not do some of the high-intensity work. But some of my senior athletes, uh, of course, once they've, once they've passed certain KPIs and they're strong enough and they're, they're able to hold positions well, they're used to the movement. Um, then they certainly do it off in the senior programs. An important thing to add here too, that it's important that they're doing this time under tension work, the lower intensity holds in, in these positions, because there's certainly a learning effect with these exercises. They're very foreign, they're very different to the traditional lifting most people have gone through. So a good extended period of time with the holds, with low loads is, is highly appropriate. To strictly answer your question, the for me, the eccentric component uh, the eccentric training is a feeder for my isometric training. So we do our eccentric stuff first. We do the longer time and attention work, work, and we build that with the load. Time and attention drop down, and then uh, we go into this unsuccessful breaking strategies. Um, when we get to this un- unsuccessful breaking strategy, it's a perfect segue into my isometric work uh, of high intensity of nature. And the reason being is effectively this unsuccessful breaking is a failed isometric tra- uh, training. Uh, failed isometric action. So what we've gone and done there is I've de- developed isometric strength qualities because I've been working them at the, the maximal capacity while I've been doing my eccentric training. So then we do move on to the higher isometric work. They've been doing their holds previously isometrically. They understand the skill and the positions they're supposed to hit. And then we move on to the higher intensity isometric work and they're able to tolerate and excel a little bit better at the isometric, um, at the isometric work. So eventually the eccentric work drops out of the training and it becomes almost solely isometric. And when I say solely isometric, there's probably, they're probably not exclusive to each other, the eccentric and the isometric contraction at the higher intensity isometric work. They're probably a quasi-isometric contraction where there's probably a little bit of fascicle lengthening uh, and then predominantly a big isometric contraction because the intensity is so great. It's always challenging between an isometric and an eccentric contraction. Most of the higher intensity and volume eccentric work occurs outside of competition. So in early GPP, mid-GPP, then the lower volume work certainly occurs throughout the season. I'll, I'll keep a thread. I've made the mistake of taking eccentric out 
eccentric training out completely, but I'll keep a thread of eccentrics coming through. But I just look at sort of, I guess, for want of a better phrase, minimal effective dose around it. And some of the QUT hamstring group have come out some really good information lately on uh, the smallest dose sort of needed to, to keep eccentric adaptations um, from, uh, from dissipating. So we'll apply small eccentric stimuluses all the way through the season. Um, but the majority of the, the work is done isometrically. And, and uh, the beauty about the isometric work is there's no mechanical damage and there's really limited residual fatigue from it. So I can have a good isometric work, high-intensity work. I can test whatever parameters I want um, from counter-movement jumps, drop jumps, uh, traction flight times, whatever metric you want to use to measure sort of CNS fatigue. And there doesn't seem to be a great deal of fatigue off of the isometrics. And there's certainly almost full recovery by, by the next day's session. So there's a quality session needing to be done the next day or a competition. You've got a great neural hit and you're still uh, fresh enough to compete and train effectively. Quick follow-up. Um, you talked about keeping eccentric training throughout um, and really trying to find that minimal effective dose. Then you also mentioned the QUT and some interesting research that recently came out. What were the findings in terms of the minimal effective dose in order to there not be a degradation in those eccentric qualities? Yeah, um, interestingly, you say that because I, I, I actually don't think they've published it. I'm not sure they have. Uh, we're fortunate enough to have uh, some of the guys out here at Aspita present recently, and um, one of my colleagues, Aidan Oakley, is um, communicating with them quite quite a lot, and he's he's um, he's off on the on the on the hamstring um, on the hamstring uh, I guess uh, buzz at the moment as well. To put it simply, two sets of four reps is what they're coming up with. <laughs> two sets of four reps once a week seems to be able to to hold eccentric qualities throughout. And um, we obviously have equipment here at Aspire Academy. We're able to test some of these things too, like our ice kinetic dynamometry and and the like. And it looks like it looks like that's the case. It looks like there's a there's a small dose that you can you can um, keep hitting an athlete with at appropriate times, and it, it manages to keep hold of those qualities. Uh, at the same token, if you if you went off of it, this is again more of their research, not mine. Uh, if you went off of it for say uh, three to four weeks, it's probably a, a decline back to baseline. So being able to do just a small dose of eccentric work placed placed strategically throughout the week. So perhaps when they've got a day off. Um, certainly in my case, not before a sprint training session. It's it's a clever thing to do to be able to maintain those adaptations. The next thing I want to talk about is you mentioned you have specific exercises that you use for the ankle, the knee, and the hip. Is that both for eccentric and isometric training? Yes, exactly. I try and do them for both. Uh, they obviously don't look the same. But yeah, uh, the for instance, the, the knee exercise, it's going to be very hard to sort of explain the exercises here, but perhaps I'll, I'll release some videos or do some, some something to, to, to show. But um. Uh, for instance, the knee exercise would be uh, either an isometric squat or an isometric pull on one leg in the correct positions, in, in the correct uh, mid-stance positions for, for running. Um, and then perhaps uh, the eccentric component of that, I, I use a hack squat machine uh, that I can I can either plate load or pin load, depending on which one you've got. And we'll do a standard two legs up and assisted with the coach with a one leg lower. And that would be the knee knee eccentric versus the knee isometric exercise if you like hip extension similar sort of thing i load it differently because obviously the loads are so much greater 
eccentrically. So the exercise I explained before where your shoulder blades are effectively on a box and your heels on a, an equal height box. We take that upper height. I get a, a dips belt around the, around an athlete's uh, hips and I can load that dips belt with, with quite a lot of weight. They can assist themselves with, with myself also manually helping to get up into a hip extended position and then they drop one leg effectively, leave one leg in control of that load and then they've got to try and lower down uh, in control. Eventually we get up to very high loads there where they're unsuccessfully breaking like I've kind of mentioned two or three times already. And uh, yeah, so exactly, we, we try and replicate that. Similar with the ankle, calf raise on a Smith machine, two legs up, assisted on the way up, even a, even a sort of a counter movement squat sort of movement to get the bar up. And then they drop one leg and they hold the, hold the one leg in plantar flex position and slowly get down, dropping the heel down underneath the box. And as the weight increases there, we're, we're obviously looking at, again, unsuccessful braking strategies to get to the very, very high end of the eccentric work. And then there's an isometric version as well where we're just holding statically in a position. So again, remember we said a few times too, the progression is from holds and holds can get to very high loads and we always uh, quantify what those loads are based on what their isometric strength capacity is. And we'll test that on a force plate. So we'll, we'll look, for example, I know a hip extension, um, a hip, hip extension from the supported weight, they can hold up to three times that supported weight with a really strong uh, guys with really strong hip extensors. I know that, uh, for instance, from a from an isometric squat or an isometric mid-thigh pull, slightly different levels of strength in these exercises. One leg, I know they're going to hit four to five times body mass, four to five times body mass off of those exercises. And I know that uh, a calf extension, they can go a seriously high-level load isometrically. They can hold anywhere from two to three times body weight with that in that position. So from there, I can quantify what loads I'm going to get them to hold. I never go up to the maximal loads um, on the holdings, so I'll, I'll normally keep them to about 75% of what their maximum could be on the holding exercises, and that 75% would represent a very short uh, uh, rep duration, so three to four seconds max. Uh, we also do maximal isometrics, so we'll do that, the hip extension exercise against an immovable bar. Uh, again, the heel pushed into a force plate, so we'll quantify the loadings off of how much force they're exerting into that force plate. Do the same thing off the isometric squat single leg and the isometric mid-thigh pull single leg. We'll also do that from the calf isometric standpoint too on force plates. Um, and so that would be, I guess, an, an addition to the holds, the switches, and the catches. We also have a max value as well. And that max kind of fits in around that unsuccessful braking strategy in the eccentric loading. So that's when my max work also features in the uh, in the paradigm. And then from that max work, we then go into the, the catches, or the, the, sorry, the switches and the catches. It's interesting, I don't really uh, look at progressions as such through a phase of a, of a, of a, of a macro cycle or um, a quadrennial cycle. I just kind of progress based off of competence. And... Um, uh, you need to have a fairly keen eye to what you're trying to see and the shapes you're, you're wanting your athletes to hit. And as they progress and they sort of, I guess, hit KPIs, you obviously have the adage of applying the load uh, to a certain point. And then you look at increasing the intensity of the exercise, which is through these switches and catches. So I very much progress not based on phases, but based on their competence. Within a weight room session, where where do you include isometrics? Is it at the tail end of the session or in the middle or, or the beginning? Yeah, so um, look, I will always be a believer in uh, the, the, the core capacities, which are strength and power. 
so they they still formulate the main part of my my workouts my training programs so they they occur in the initial part of the program uh the session should i say and these uh, isometric exercises are more the assistance-based exercises however i would add in there i have completely removed at times based on the athlete not based on any particular model or, or any bias to my training philosophies i have completely removed traditional training so strength and power training i've only done isometric training and so that would be the only component of the training program itself and we'll go from high intensity max efforts uh, against an immovable object again quantified through force plates and then we'll do the uh, the catches for instance afterwards and then besides the hamstring and other assistance work work we do for sprinters or or other other athletes for example that's the session done and we've been very successful and I say successful successful in supporting the sprint program and getting uh, great performances through the competitive cycles using those sort of exercises as well so again what we're doing there is we've had this huge neural hit a high level of rate of force development based off of this exercise so these rate of force developments with these sort of exercises on the isometric side of things are much higher than obviously a dynamic lift if you like like a traditional lift but and borders more on the ballistic lifting sort of rate of force development uh, values so again I'm getting almost a power value although I'm working isometric a uh, huge neural hit with limited fatigue no mechanical damage and it's actually very good preparation for the guys to then go and do their sprint specific work because that's it that's kind of a snapshot in in how it kind of can fit in with uh with the microcycles within session and uh, macrocycle what were the reasonings or the decision making process in completely removing traditional training in those specific instances and just focusing on isometrics yes yeah, so very simply put athletes are very strong and very powerful so it's come to a stage where i've got an athlete you know, squatting 2.7 times body weight deep, very, very strong. They're a sprinter, they're not, a, they're not an Olympic lifter or a, or a power lifter. They're extremely powerful. They're reactive. In this particular example I'm thinking of at the moment, we, we had a big phase of getting this guy more reactive. So he was still doing some really intense plyometric work and supporting uh, the plyometric work with really good isometric training. And then, uh, so there was no further need to develop strength um i had also had this athlete back to back years i could happily drop out of squat another misconception people think drop out of squat completely he wouldn't touch a squat for four or five months i could then come back into preseason in G- early gpp and within within a four or six week period he's back up to squatting 2.2 times body weight 2.3 and then if i wanted to grind it out i could get him back to 2.7 times body weight squatting not a problem so it was a matter of what does this athlete need right now can i get away with taking out um these traditional lifts and just applying a huge neural hit through an isometric training where i know a that the muscle contracts isometrically and is running so i'm doing being very specific with the type of muscle contraction plus i'm getting this huge neural hit which is supporting you know uh the neural hit that's occurring in the sprinting and so i'm completing the program in its entirety around that of course i was still doing my hamstring work and my jump work um uh still providing some holistic training but able to change the whole impulse the overall load and volume of the training so he was fresher to do what he does best and excel in the i guess the coordinated synchronicity of sprinting fast and um and and then that's some that's some of the thought process around that now it doesn't happen all the time but again I'm certainly a big believer in not being sold to to mon- to a method of training and Uh, and rather just seeing what's in front of me and adapting to what's in front of me. 
Alex, if anybody wants to reach out to you based on anything that you said in today's podcast, um, whether it's just to chat or they have any additional questions, what is the best way that they can do so? I think the best way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. I think uh, my, my handle's Alex underscore Natera, spelled N-A-T-E-R-A. I think that's the best port of call for initial uh, initial catch up, and then from there we can sort of swap details, and then uh, and then uh, and then get in comms a bit better. Look, I'm happy to share some videos. Maybe I'll, I'll tweet something or, um, of, of the exercises, uh, whatnot. Depending on when you release this, James, uh, we're coming, like I said, into a period of Ramadan here, where there's it, it goes slow a little bit here, and there's plenty of time to get in contact with people and talk and whatnot. So, more than happy to do it now. Otherwise, if I don't get hold of people, uh, it's because we've gotten busy again and. Um, It'll be a matter of just bugging me, and then I'll, I'll get <laughs> I'll get in contact. It's a busy life at the moment, mate. We've got uh, we've got a PhD going on. I've got my family. I've got I'm coaching technical coaching rugby, and I've got work as well. So it can all get a bit crazy sometimes. But I, I definitely get back to people one way or the other. Yeah, it sounds like quite the full plate you have going on over there. <laughs> not not that easy in the desert, mate. We get busy, Alex complete pleasure i'm glad that we finally found the time to get you on the podcast to talk about eccentric and isometric trading uh, so i greatly appreciate it and hope you have a great rest of the day thanks james you too mate um was a pleasure and really like what you guys are doing with these podcasts uh, yours in particular is really going from strength to strength and it's a privilege to be part of it thanks a lot thanks again for listening i hope you enjoyed it Next week on the Historic Performance Podcast, Anthony White, the first team assistant goalkeeping coach at AFC Bournemouth, discusses how they have integrated sports science with coaching to analyze the demands of the game on goalkeepers and subsequently how they have utilized that data to improve training and readiness. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to head over to iTunes to leave either a review or rating. It only helps others discover the show. For today's show notes, make sure to head over to the website, historicperformance.net. And for all subsequent episodes, you can also find it on the website or follow me via Twitter at Historic Perform. I'll see all of you next week.